Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, Digital Editor of FT Advisor. Last month marked five years since the publication of the Financial Advice Market Review's final report. One of the report's objectives was to close the advice gap, but by some measurements, this has actually grown in recent years, despite the proliferation of robo-advice offerings and banks returning to the financial advice space. And earlier this year, the government was forced to admit that one of the measures introduced by the FAMR to bridge the gap, the pensions advice allowance, wasn't working in its current form and would be reviewed. So what now? Is advice or guidance the answer? And what role do advisors and providers play in fixing the advice gap? With me to discuss this are Keith Richards, Chief Executive of the Personal Finance Society, and Prakash Chandramohan, Strategic Policy Director at Pfizer. Hello both. Hi, Damien. Hi, Damien. So, Keith, we'll start with you, if I may. Uh, five years on from the FAMR final report being published, uh, do you feel that the advice gap has closed and improved anyway? Um, the, the advice gap is likely to have increased, uh, Damien. The, although the number of advisors during that, that period have actually increased, which is a really positive uh, indicator, um, it, it's professional advice continues to evolve. And by definition, you're probably seeing more and more professional advisors actually having a smaller bank of wealthier clients. So the bigger issue that, that we really face is one of the underlying challenges or objectives of the Financial Advice Market Review was to provide access to financial advice at all life stages, and in particular for hardworking people who wanted to do the right thing. So in other words, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the typical age of a, a client for many advisors probably would have been in their mid-30s, so definitely in the accumulation stage and uh, a very different sort of need set. Whereas now, of course, you talk to professional advisors and, and many of them are helping their client bank who are actually in retirement. So they're in the decumulation stage and, and actively need advice to make sure that their, their life plans are fully met. So we're likely to have seen that, that growth. And although the FCA have uh, provided some, some good statistics, I mean, there are some positive news uh, that, that came from the FCA's review at the end of last year. I mean, in particular, uh, there is always going to be a propensity towards can advice be bridged by greater simplification, in particular the use of technology. And there is some evidence that that, that is growing, but it's slow. And we know that, that many of the startups and, and the robo options underestimated the cost to generate traffic into their websites, the traction for people to be motivated to do something. So, you know, we're now seeing a government and a regulator recognising the amount of cash which is just sitting idly in bank accounts because people aren't engaging in the process. So I would say, you know, overall, since we highlighted the issue with the Treasury back in 2015 and then the Financial Advice Market Review came out, which was a really positive step. First time government had really been involved in the debate. Uh, prior to that, it all always been about contraction of markets to improve quality, if you like. But but we are now still grappling with, with how do we address what is fundamentally an increasing advice gap. Mm-hmm. And Prakash, where do you see um, the current level lands from your perspective at Tizer? Yeah, I mean, a bit like what Keith says, I mean, the advice gap is very much alive and kicking. And we shouldn't really be surprised about that because the, you know, the, the key deadlocks are, are still there. Uh, so if you look at sort of before RDR, 
you know, people got to walk into a branch, you know, speak to a professional after RDR, you know, banks have to close their, um, you know, their direct sort of sales forces. So people have now moved to, you know, social media, friends, family, um, you know, Google. And so that, that dynamic um, hasn't really be sol- has, hasn't been solved over the last five years. Uh, you've got the you know, the regulatory issues of um, RDR that forces consumers to pay for investment advice, you know, even if a product is actually not taken out, and you know people just don't want to you know, don't want to do that. And then you've got the the issue of uh, product providers who can't provide that personalised support that you know consumers desire, you know, because of the advice regulations, and obviously that hasn't changed as well. In, in the last five years. So, yeah, we, we see, um, you know, we see no real sort of change to, you know, to the advice gap. There's still mm. a problem to be solved. Mm. And, and Prakash, just to stay with you on this next one, do you think that the solution to this is wider provision of, you know, full fat financial planning, financial advice, or is it a, a greater proliferation of guidance tools, um, you know, maybe from providers, maybe from advisors themselves? Yeah, I mean, good question. I mean, we, we don't see the advice gap being solved by 40 million people now getting advice who weren't getting advice. That's just not going not gonna to happen. Uh, we see you know, the closing of the advice gap, meaning you know, people who are more empowered, making you know, better financial decisions, uh, getting one-off support, uh, and you know, to be able to empower consumers, uh, they do need more help from you know, providers. They do need more tools, more personalised support. Uh, you know, these are the things that are, are scalable. Uh, these are the things that can be provided for free. Uh, and that's going to be really important to, to you know, hit the 40 million people who are not getting the support with their financial affairs. Mm. What do you think, Keith? I suppose from your, the point of view of some of your members, they might argue, well, why should I give advice to clients who aren't, you know, it's not profitable for me to give advice to? Yeah, and that's often been cited, Damien, but I, I passionately believe that the answer is a blended solution. So I think professional advice has a, a big role to play. I mean, arguably in the FCA's rule book, advisors can simplify their current advice process, but The problem with that is if you try to simplify, you could leave yourself more vulnerable to a future claim of liability. Or worse than that, you could leave yourself vulnerable to the FCA deeming that you didn't gather enough data and information uh, to enable you to make a recommendation. So regulation is a massive issue that does need to be addressed. And we are seeing some signs that regulators and governments are realising that pushing massive burden onto sectors who are regulated intent on doing the right thing when actually the increasing scourge that we're all facing is scammers who are unregulated and absolutely out their intent on relieving people of all of their hard-earned savings is, is perhaps time to redress the focus of where regulation needs to sit. It's certainly not on good firms that could address some of the challenges of those people who, who want to engage at an earlier stage. But as you say, for some, for some financial advisors, they've got to balance off the financial cost uh, to operate 
uh, and the economics of being able to offer advice across a range. Now, I know from personal experience, there are plenty of advisors up and down the country who do. You know, they don't subscribe to having a certain limit, but it's not something you can publish. So they treat every case on its own merits and they'll, they'll simplify uh, based on the merits of the client. That said, of course, we're all using technology more and more. There's no question that the pandemic has accelerated that. I mean, after all, we are we have now got um, you know 80 year old clients who are now using the same technology as their grandchildren. So, in some ways, COVID has created an acceleration of thinking around the use and interaction of technology and how we might engage people more. It's certainly been an intergenerational um, equalizer uh, in the sense that, that we are all now forced to use it for our personal lives. And I think we're going to see that change. So for me, it's about blend. One of the things that is encouraging to see, uh, and it certainly came in the original financial advice market review, was the recognition that regulation itself can be a massive barrier to stopping good consumer outcomes or allowing uh, or attracting new entrants into the market or existing players to expand their services. So we really must go back to grappling that issue because otherwise it does force professional firms to continue to focus on wealthier, you know, smaller group of wealthier clients where they can manage that risk and cost aspect uh, more effectively. <clears throat> And Keith, what do you think the the roles are for advisors and providers in, in addressing this issue? Because some advisors might not necessarily be keen to say, "Well, I can't help you, but go to your provider and they'll give you, you know, this information." Because they might think, "Well, you know, it's it's going to be from a provider, so they might want to sell things." Um, what do you uh, think on on, on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there is there, there is a point where we must join together. We must join forces. And I think, uh, you know, the point you've just made, I, I've always felt, uh, Damien, that signposting, if you can't offer a service, you, we should at least feel inclined to signpost people to somewhere they can. So, for example, we've already got the government services, pension-wise, that will signpost consumers to professional advice where their needs are obvious, what we should be doing uh, as a sector is that we should be signposting people to pension-wise because they might just need some straightforward information and guidance. And therefore, actually, in many ways, pension-wise could well be an added service of a professional advice firm. The question around where product providers sit and even the banks, as Prakash sort of referenced earlier, they have a key role to play. So regulation has forced consolidation of markets. Uh, it has largely addressed many of the issues that regulators saw at the time. It is time for fresh thinking. We, we can't allow uh, past history to keep clouding our judgment of how you engage public. The FCA issued their, their uh, financial lives report recently and recognised that 27.7 million consumers are facing vulnerable circumstances due to the pandemic. Over half of the population haven't got the level of financial resilience that they need. Now, that doesn't mean to say that they couldn't have been saving, they couldn't have been building. Uh, you know, plenty of people in their early stage of life have a balance between borrowing and saving. What we're not seeing is, of course, people being engaged to understand how they, they, they work towards goals and objectives 
and it's mainly regulation that's hindering that that process so we must bring the regulator back to the table it is encouraging that the fca of recent are talking about streamlined advice again uh, and we've had some very early indicators from the regulator that the exit from the european union might allow them to think more flexibly about whether or not streamlined advice my personal preference is we've got to get away from trying to call anything advice advice is professional advice so i think and after that it's regulated information and it might be intuitive for consumers to recognize the difference between getting good information that empowers them to make informed decisions versus advice which is something that you almost certainly pay for as a professional service so we're now starting to see the regulator at least flex their thinking around whether or not there should be safe havens for people who want to offer uh, regulated information. Uh, I'll just give that a term at the moment, Damien. Yeah, I'm sure, sure. there'll be much better uh, um, descriptors of it in the future. But that means that regulated professional advice firms can adopt that as well. So that's why I think there is a blend, and I think professional advisors have a big role to play in that future landscape, but as do the banks and as do the, the, the product providers uh, of old. But we do need to put the past behind us and think about how we move forward into the future to address the advice gap. Mm, sure. And, and Prakash, what, what do you think the, the, the different roles of advisors and, and providers are in, in addressing this? Yeah. So we, we think advisors do have a, a large role to play in, in getting more people over that tipping point into seeing the value of advice. Um, and I think if they if they can demonstrate the value of of paid advice more, that'll be a good thing for uh, for consumers. Um, that they have to address this misconception as well that advice is you know for the wealthy. And I think if they start providing more sort of one-off advice services, that will really start really helping you know the people in the in, in the advice gap in the middle of the advice gap. But but I think we'd have we have to be careful not to rely too much on the advice sector because. We know there's a shortage of advisors in the country. There's an aging demographic with, with that advice population. Um, a lot of advisors are happy servicing the clients they have already. Um, they can't actually fit in any more clients into their, in, into their yearly schedule. So we, we think, that, yes, advisors, the advice sector does have more to, you know, more to offer, but we think that um, the, the sectors that really have to um, come to play here are the product providers and and actually fintechs. So on, on the product providers, uh, they're the ones with the customers now. They understand from the data that they have on these customers what issues they they have, and they're able to, if they could, if the advice if the advice regulations allowed them, they could nudge people into better behaviours. They could filter options for them. They could prompt customers of problems that they have. Uh, but these things, you know, they're not really allowed to do at the moment, given given advice regulations. Uh, but if they did provide these sort of services, then people would would be more empowered. They'd be more knowledgeable. They'd be able to figure out what the most relevant options are for them. So we think that yeah, you know, there's a big role to play for providers. And then on the fintech side, if you look at all the um, the smart data initiatives going on in the country. I mean, you have open banking that is launched, you've got open finance coming along, digital ID, pensions dashboard. I mean, these are uh, these are initiatives that are gonna allow consumers to be able to see all their finances in one place. 
And then we're going to have fintechs who can compile that information for the benefit of consumers and you know, prompt consumers as to you know, what issues they have, uh, prompt them into you know, the advice services that they need or the, or the product providers they need to speak to. So, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of dynamics um, that are going to be happening over the next sort of five years that will really help consumers. One of the issues that Keith touched on was the um, thorny issue of the advice guidance definition or barrier. Uh, Prakash, do you feel that that's still an issue that needs addressing? Because I remember speaking to providers who said that they were concerned about giving information to their you know clients because they were concerned about tipping into that um, advice barrier. Yeah, look, it's a massive issue uh, and it really has to be solved. So if you look at the advice regulations, the perimeter guidance rules, uh, it's very difficult to understand, number one. Number two is that if you've got like a product you know, proposition person thinking of a great sort of support service uh, and they go to their compliance team to say, to ask you know, whether it's allowed or not. If you look at the, the FCA rules, there's a, there's a way to argue that it's allowed and there's, there's a way to argue that it's not allowed. And, that, and that's, this really creates a you know, problem for, for sign-off. Uh, you know, the FCA is saying that firms need to take more, uh, you know, regulatory risk. And I think there is a good argument for that. I think that firms have, have, have got a bit scared and become much more sort of risk averse. Uh, but then, you know, it, this is a two-way, you know, it's a two-way street. I think the regulator and firms need to work together to, you know, figure out what's allowed, what's not allowed, and then for changes in the advice regs to be made that will encourage more personalised guidance, you know, support services. Mm, cool. And um, uh, Keith, do you feel, I mean, you've alluded to this already, but do you feel that the advice guidance or regulated information, uh, definitely that barrier, is, is it still not in the right place? Because we've been having discussions about this for years. Yeah, it's 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 not, uh, Damien, and and the you know the challenge that that we face with big institutions coming back in is the fear that you you, you try to create a one size fits all. So the mis-selling scandals of the past have really all been around a formulaic uh, approach, so one size fits all. Uh, and even if actually you deem that ninety five percent of consumers who who got a certain product or solution it was appropriate, it's what about the 5% that may not? And then that ends up with a big uh, redress program. So I think the, the complexity around simplifying uh, advice, guidance, actually has to be also taken in the context of what does the consumer understand? And we know from countless consumer research that the consumer doesn't actually consciously think of the difference. We know that pension-wise absolutely focus on and keep reiterating that they're only providing guidance not advice but when they get their feedback from the client the client normally starts with thanking them for the advice so you know we've we've and we've over the years we've come up with um i don't know process that tries to differentiate between full-blown advice and simplified and we've given it names like simplified advice or basic advice or gated advice uh, and then actually a surprise that the consumer doesn't understand what the difference is uh, because they've got nothing to compare against. So you give them advice, you give them advice. And um, so I think the challenge that all organisations and all firms have is, you know, it's back to a point of 
there are different programs out there. There are many IFA businesses or many advice businesses who don't want to, to come back from the model that they've now developed and they want to carry on in that niche market. Um, that's different from the bigger issue we're trying to solve here, which is regulation has really created social exclusion and it's difficult for firms to understand how they can address it without falling foul of retrospective regulatory standards that then leave them with massive liabilities. So many of the fines of the past weren't based on consumers complaining. They were based on a regulatory visit that deemed that processes and systems weren't robust enough and then firms had to go into a Section 166 or go under a skilled persons or worse than that, they had to do a review and then offer lots of redress out. So if you're a big organisation, that's really scary because you have to start provisioning for the liability. And let's not forget many advisors who, who might listen to this, you know, a big axe to grind here is that there's unlimited liability for regulated advice, unlike other professions. Um, so almost certainly you have to start provisioning against the likelihood that you're going to either end up with a massive regulatory review, which could cost millions of pounds, uh, and off, offer redress, even though a consumer may never have complained. There's also the other big issue that we're, we're facing in the original financial advice market review. Let's not forget that the number one issue that advisors fed into that consultation that then created 22 work streams or 27 work streams was the FSCS and the issue with a hardening PII market, which, of course, has been the number one controversial issue for, for many advice firms. Uh, and back to a point that was made earlier, we may see more advisors exiting because of the increasing cost and risk associated with staying in the market. Now, that's a real travesty because many of them, I suspect, would rather carry on, uh, and, uh, but actually just feel that it's getting to a point where, where it's just not financially viable. So I think, you know, this is the time where we need to pull the government back in. We've certainly called for a financial advice market review too, because the core focus of the government was looking at how it could bring the barriers down that otherwise hinder the sector uh, being able to engage with more consumers in a way that they want, whether it's through thin fintech, big organisation, whether we really call it information, guidance, or advice, we need the government to get involved and make really clear of expectations so people have got certainty about how they're going to be treated in the future. That uncertainty stops an awful lot of organisations engaging in the process. Mm. And it, it, so is that, as you see it, the, the main barrier that needs to be addressed, that sort of uncertainty, that liability issue? Because there's no sort of shortage of interest in entering this market we've seen it with private equity we've seen it with you know companies like schroders coming into the market but they're not coming in to necessarily you know fill the advice gap they're coming in to service the sort of people who would typically get advice so is that liability issue the key issue that needs to be sorted to the key barrier yeah it is and i think um no it absolutely is i think uncertainty you know paralyzes a lot of us on doing things um you know, we've all been left in situations where we're waiting for a decision. And, and even if you end up with a decision that you didn't want, you move on from that point. But actually, until you get the decision, you can often be paralysed in doing doing anything. Uh, and it's very similar with unlimited liability or, or have you interpreted the rules correctly? 
you know, could you fall foul of a sub subsequent change? Now, whether or not the regulator, you know, the regulator will always say that they're not retrospective, but they always have the value or the benefit of being able to review things with hindsight. Whereas at a point of giving advice, you are giving the best advice or suitable advice based on the circumstances at the time. Things can change, which actually dynamically change whether or not a certain investment fund or solution might have been better than the other. So we've been regulated uh, frustratingly based on uh, a regulator that's got the benefit to review what's happened during a period and whether the solution offered was right one. The issue that, that many firms face is they can't be certain that they're always going to deliver perfect. You know, when I was asked years ago, you know, can you guarantee that your company will still be top of the charts uh, when, when my investments mature? Uh, of course, you could say no. I'm, you know, they change. Investment performance change. It goes up and down, and therefore the position of, uh, of different companies will change throughout the period. But what we can assure you is that it's a suitable product to meet the goals and objectives you've got. Whether it will be number one or 50th in the chart, it will achieve the goals and objectives. So, But the problem that we face uh, as a sector is we're trying to constantly trying to address perfect and perfect is often quoted as the enemy of the good because you can't ever end up you know you get advice off two two professional advisors qualified to the same level same level of experience you may end up with different uh, investment solutions to address exactly the same uh, needs goals and aspirations of the client one will over time if you wanted to measure them probably yield a slightly better performance outcome than another does that make the second one inappropriate or bad advice absolutely not so i think i think we've got it's a very complex area that gets very confusing but it is about uncertainty of how regulatory treatment in the future is going to place undue financial pressure or liability on a firm that acts in good faith so i think that's the bit we're, we're grappling with uh, i like the idea of uh, we have called before for a safe haven for things like regulated uh, information or regulated guidance but I think we're not going to be able to retract back from where we are because there's no question about it. Professional advice has moved on considerably and no one wants to see that unwind. So we're in a slightly complex world where we've got some good examples of very good practice and how the world has moved on. What we don't want to, to, to do is actually undo all of that by rushing in to provide a solution that that may actually take us back several years. So I think it's as long as we're focused on how we move things forward rather than how we go back, then uh, definitely we'll come up with uh, opportunity. But I think the, the evident need of consumers absolutely needs to drive policymaker behaviours to support the markets in coming up with the right, uh, the right solutions to meet the needs of the public. Sure. And, and Prakash, what do you see as being the, the barriers that need to be addressed to fill the advice gap? So the regulatory deadlock, that, that needs to be solved. And we've, we've talked a lot about um, that on this call, uh, whereby you've got very strict advice regulations you know, from the, you know, originated from the EU uh, that don't allow firms to provide you know, personalised support services. And you've got uh, RDR that forces consumers to actually pay for advice uh, even if they don't take up a product. And we, we think that 
these two regulations mix like oil and water. You know, they, they don't mix. So we need a, a regulatory framework that is you know, suited to the needs of UK consumers and suited to you know, the RDR regulations that aren't going to change. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing. The, the other thing is that consumer behaviours and consumer you know, the way consumers buy products has, has changed significantly you know, over the last five years. Uh, COVID, the pandemic, has, has been a catalyst for people you know, going online. And we need a regulatory regime that, that actually fits with the way consumers now you know, make purchasing decisions. Uh, again, you know, this is very much linked to the, the, the restrictions you know, product providers have in terms of providing some personalized support you know, to, to their consumers. I mean, the, the analogy that I use is, you know, imagine like buying a car and then you know, a week later you, you call the dealership and um, you, wanna, you want their advice on, on how to use this car better. And imagine if the dealership said to you, well, look, we can't really give you that sort of advice. You need to pay £750 uh, for that. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't work. And that's the problem that product providers have at the moment. They can't provide the personalised support to their existing consumers in the way, you know, way they want to. So I think that if, if, if we do um, solve this regulatory deadlock, uh, that is going to, yeah, that, that's going to lift a, a massive barrier. In, in the UK, mm. interesting, Damien. I was going to say the you know it's, it's worth stepping back in time uh, to look at just the 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 key objectives of the financial advice market review, and it was to look at the extent and cause of the advice gap for those people who do not have significant wealth or income, uh, the regulatory or other barriers firms may face in giving advice and how to overcome them, how to give firms the regulatory clarity and create the right environment for them to innovate and grow, uh, the opportunities and challenges presented by new and emerging technologies to provide cost-efficient and effective and user-friendly advice services, and how to encourage a healthy demand side for financial advice, including addressing barriers which put consumers off seeking advice. These were all worthy objectives then. They are all very relevant now. And I'm sorry to say that the Financial Advice Market Review pointed in the right direction, actually never concluded and, and addressed those core uh, objectives from its outset. So we've got to pull them back in and we've got to get the government and the markets and the regulator together to, to re-examine those and come up with solutions rather than just another set of bullet point objectives. Mm. Well, hopefully we won't be having this discussion in uh, the next in another five years' time. Uh, <laughs> great. Well, thank you to Keith and uh, thank you to um, Prakash for uh, joining me. And uh, thank you to you for listening and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.